Welcome back to Becoming Your Best Version, a podcast in which I get to interview amazing, inspiring women who have turned their lives around, who have inspired others, and who have made a difference in my life. Today, I am so thrilled to have the student body president, the president of my University of Virginia Law School student government from the 80s, I won't say what year, uh, here in the studio with me, my good friend, Deborah Sabatini Henley. Debbie has helped executives and boards create cultures of integrity and inclusion, which are essential to the resilience of organizations and their people. She has been working in ethical leadership and culture for at least 10 years. She uses stakeholder focused frameworks for managing compliance, ethical risks and opportunities and helps integrate them into operations and cultures for many different kinds of organizations. She also coaches legal and compliance professionals, helping them lead effectively and develop strategies for personal resilience. For more than 25 years, Debbie has been creating innovative approaches to managing compliance and fostering ethical leadership from boardrooms to break rooms with organizations ranging from small entities to some of the largest multinationals. Her expertise is rooted in her multidisciplinary background in engineering and law, cultivated through her decades of corporate leadership roles and consulting experiences. Her passions for learning, teaching, and connecting the dots fuels her ability to inspire authenticity, engagement, and accountability. She founded a company called Resility in 2004 to provide ethical leadership, culture, and compliance consulting and training. Debbie and her talented colleagues offer a comprehensive suite of services, including holistic risk management, culture mapping, and experiential learning. They help bring to life organizational values and build cultures of integrity that support the perspectives and dignity of each individual in a team and across an organization. As if that weren't enough, Debbie is an adjunct professor at Fordham University School of Law's program on corporate ethics and compliance. She, you can read more about her bio and her many impressive um, flags and feathers in her cap, helping corporations do incredible things. She's had in-house counsel roles at public and private companies. She works for ethics and compliance service providers. She has an uncommon, uncommon perspective from both sides of the client vendor relationship. She practiced law prior to her corporate experience in two major law firms in Washington, D.C. and New Jersey. And before that, she was a civil and environmental engineer supervising construction for Exxon. 
She is a member of the Society of Human Resource Management and Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and speaks frequently at conferences and writes on several platforms. She has also authored an incredible book called Presence in Chaos, 365 Mindful Moments. This book must be on your bookshelves and on your coffee tables. It is a beautiful collection of her own photography with quotes that will inspire and delight you. The Presence in Chaos, 365 Mindful Moments came out in 2020 in paperback. It's available on Kindle and in paperback, or you can go to your library or bookstore and ask them to carry it because it is available everywhere. She talks about her own personal story in the introduction to the book, which is we'll get into during the podcast. I recommend you follow her on social media for a daily dose of inspiration and good humor. So let, it is my great honor to welcome my good friend, Debbie Sabatini Hanley. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you, Maria. Oh, so lovely of you to give me that introduction. I'm, I'm exhausted hearing it, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, like me, as are a woman with a great deal of energy, a great deal to say, and a passion for helping other people become their best versions. You have spread that over a lengthy career in many different industries. And I'm so grateful that after a few tries, given our busy schedules, we were able to come together and talk about some of the, some of the great things in the considerable light you are shining in our world. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So after you did um, great things in private practice and in corporate America, you decided to strike out on your own and form a company called Resility. Is, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes. I actually, it, initially I called it compliance and ethics solutions because okay. that's what I was doing back right. then in 2004. Mm -hmm. um, I rebranded it um, because I, I realized my focus was more on resilience than on compliance and um, resilience for people, resilience for teams, resilience for organizations, you know, all, all of which requires being true to your principles, being connected to something that is bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so I rebranded as Resility in, um, I guess it was 2018. Was okay, excellent. And I imagine that during the pandemic, resilience has been at the forefront of most leaders' minds. How has your practice changed during the pandemic? And as we ease back into normal, normal, will we ever be normal again? As we new ease normal. back into the new, new normal. normal. Yeah, if new you normal. could tell us about how a resilience facilitation practice, what it looked like before the pandemic, what it looks like now. Uh, yeah, let's start there. Sure, sure. sure. Uh, well, the obvious change was what used to be in-person live training and risk assessments and workshops immediately stopped and probably could have killed my business if I didn't 
shift to this idea of doing what we do virtually through Zoom. Um, used to be Skype. Remember Skype? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so first I had to learn to um, tolerate myself on video, which I <laughs> never really liked. You are beautiful, um, my friend. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. So are you. Um, but then it was also, you know, learning how to engage people this way when I was so used to doing it in person mm. and making, making a personal connection by, you know, eye contact and body language and, you know, seeing people's faces when you're talking to a group, you know, that's so much a part of what I used to do, what right. we used to do. So learning to get people talking in small groups, um, actually getting the, the quiet people to participate yes. was actually easier. Oh, I find, yeah, because it was almost like, um, you know, you do more moderation, I think, when you're in a virtual setting like this, um, oh. it's, it's less of a free for all. Interesting. So, yeah. So I, I have to say so some of the silver lining was learning how to do this in a remote setting because it then made it easier to do the hybrid setting, which wasn't always easy. You know, if you if you're working with a group in a room and some people were participating by, you know, video conference, remember, mm -hmm. remember that phrase? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was it was hard to, to keep them engaged. So I have to say the the first thing that changed was learning how to use this technology. And I, I do think it was a, um, a, a good shift. Well, you're uh, someone who's always been really adept at reading social cues and body language in my experience of you. And I would imagine that trying to do what you do online, it's harder both ways to observe the room, to get a feel for the tenor of how people are feeling, so you had to hone new skills. Right, 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 exactly. I would say the one, um, the one skill that did translate was humor. Ah, yes, you've humor. always had a good sense of humor. Oh, you're sweet. I, I'm not always as funny as some of our classmates, but um, <laughs> I do, I think I do have a good sense of humor. And I know how humor can be used to break through tension, mm. um, differences of opinion, Mm -hmm. Um, especially if I, if I make myself the focus of the humor and talk about my own shortcomings as mm -hmm. a leader, mm -hmm. you know, if what I'm trying to do is develop a sense of, um, psychological safety, for example, um, Ooh, I haven't heard that term and, and that makes a lot of sense. Well, in, in the compliance and ethics world, what we know is that getting employees to speak up about what's going on in the organization is the best early warning signal you can get when something's going off the rails. And so, um, you know, as lawyers, we know how to clean up a mess after it's happened, mm -hmm. but the idea of building preventative, um, you know, buffers into an organizational culture is very important. So, Yes, we can do training, you know, PowerPoint and interactive online courses for different risk areas, you know, corruption and fraud and harassment and so forth. But when it comes to 
making sure it's really happening the way it's supposed to happen in the organization, you need employees to feel safe speaking up. And that was really, you know, I mentioned um, when we were speaking earlier that I have focused really for about 10 years now on culture and leadership. And that's because I know I learned the hard way that as good as your policies are, as great as you think your training is, if the leadership doesn't buy into the importance of embedding those principles in the way they do business, the way they they compensate people or motivate people, then it kind of doesn't matter how great your code of conduct is or your policies are. You, you have to focus on creating that culture, that speaking up culture. So employees will let you know when there's a problem or ask a question when they don't know how to handle a situation. Um, so psychological safety is you know, that, that's what one of my colleagues, Maren Guba, is, um, is a, an expert at the, you know, building it, mapping it. And together, we've created some workshops to help companies and teams identify where the obstacles are. Um, what's interesting is the interesting, it's more than interesting. What's powerful is that a team that feels comfortable sharing ideas um, that's a, that's a team that can innovate. That's a right. team that can create, right? We know that that's mm -hmm. a, that's like a business thing. Yes. Well, that's the angle that Marin came from that. The angle that I came from was, well, I need leaders to, to be open to hearing bad news. I need leaders to encourage people to share mistakes, or I don't know what to do, or I think something over here is going wrong. And you know what we're realizing is we're kind of looking at the elephant from different angles, right? It's it's yeah. all psychological safety, right? It just has these different benefits, right? It has business benefits and it has legal and reputational benefits. Well, I have about a hundred clients who could benefit from your work. <laughs> how how do how do does corp is corporate America clued in to how important your work is? Um, some, some parts of it. And I would say, um, you know, European culture too, mm -hmm. and Canadian culture too. Um, it, it really depends more on the, the company, mm -hmm. the, the leadership of the company mm -hmm. and less on the industry or, you know, the geographical lo location. If you have, you know, you know, the expression tone at the top, if you yes. have leaders who, who are, you know, saying and, and doing ethical things, you know, mm -hmm. telling, telling employees that cutting corners is, is never the way to make numbers, right. Mm -hmm. That we never sacrifice safety for, you know, deliverables, for example, right. right. Those leaders are then making sure that middle managers understand that importance then it'll really happen. It'll really come to life. Okay. So, so what you're saying is you really need, it needs to start at the top to be absolutely. successful. Absolutely. Because that's where the, the goals and the objectives and the strategy are coming from, right? So if a business strategy includes uh, these sort of um, holistic mm -hmm. uh, elements, like we want engaged employees, mm -hmm. we don't want turnover, we want diverse opinions and diverse skill sets, and we want people to feel included. Mm -hmm. If that's as much a part of the business strategy as 
you know, grabbing a bigger market share or developing new products, then you're going to create a culture that is resilient because Mm -hmm. the people are resilient and the leaders are leading in a way that keeps the the long-term health of the company and its people in mind, not just this quarter or, you know, this year. Right. Well, I'm guessing it takes a very open-minded leader to see and appreciate the value of what the kind of work that you do, because the bottom line has governed most of corporate America, at least when we were young. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you see it changing now? Is that, is that the new generations doing some of it is, is the new, gen- the younger generations listen to us. Yeah, right. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, I would say that, that there's a combination of factors that are pushing leaders to think this way. Okay. Um, certainly the, the environment, social governance, ESG movement, you know, the, the focus on those aspects of a business mm-hmm. um, have taken a much bigger sort of seat at the table, if you will, um, along with focusing on the bottom line. And um, I think we saw the beginnings of this this focus on social responsibility coming kind of back to life Mm -hmm. with Me Too, with Black Lives Matter. Um, I think sustainability has been around since, you know, before we were in law school. But now, because climate change has taken a central position in global business discussions and in what, you know, global stakeholders are looking at, um, it, it has really pushed corporate leaders to see the importance of it. And, um, and look, we've seen institutional shareholders um, elbow the companies that they uh, invest in to do the right thing about climate change, to make right. decisions that make more sense for the long term, and and so where sustainability has been, social responsibility is following, mm-hmm. and all of that has to get baked into the way the company makes decisions, as you know, part of the strategy. And so, you know, in, on the one hand, yes, it's coming from younger generations, but it's also coming from major institutional investors as well. I'm so, so grateful to hear that. That is hearkening a new chapter in our, in our corporate lives. Can you speak more about resilience in that specifically as a corporate leader, I would think at least old school might say, resilience, what are you talking about? Pick yourself up by the, by the bootstraps and get to work. Like, why is it my responsibility to teach individual employees how to be resilient? Uh, How do you sell old school employers on the notion that it benefits the entire company if you teach resiliency skills? And how do you teach resiliency skills? That's a a very good question. Um, You have to start from... Well, really, with with any change that we are trying to drive in a corporate culture, mm-hmm. you have to start from why they should care, right? Okay, so, yeah. so unfortunately, we have to start from why it's important to the resilience of the organization mm. to have resilient 
teams and employees yes. doing the work of the right. organization. Hopefully that's not a very long conversation. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots and lots of data now about the connection between employee well-being and organizational health, organizational long-term value. Um, I think the, the best example we have of the, this interconnection is the great recession, excuse me, the, the, the great attrition. Mm -hmm. I know everybody says resignation, but I think we have to see it as the great attrition. So employees leaving your company um, during the pandemic is, is about employees deciding that it wasn't worth whatever the risk was, or it wasn't worth whatever the pain was to be working at your company. And they'd rather try to go it alone as a solopreneur or a consultant or find a job in a better culture, working for a different leadership than working for yours. So, so there's, there's some data there, right? But mm -hmm. then the next piece of it is to help leaders understand that resilience at the individual level is not just about, you know, give them a gym membership or tell them to learn how to meditate. Right. It, it's really about the health of the, the teams that are working together, not just the individuals that are working. And so individual resilience has a, a, a very strong connection to the ability of your managers to adapt to change, um, to understand how to create environments where employees can bring their strengths to what they're doing. They can speak up, as we were saying earlier, they can speak up when they have a question or they have an idea that maybe is even better than your idea as a mm -hmm. manager. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the, the employee well-being, the employee resilience is reflected in, do they feel they belong? Do they feel that their voice matters, their work matters? Um, you know, think of the, the fulfillment and the, and the joy that comes from doing work you think is important, right? Doing work you think is valued by your manager. So, so that's as, as big a piece, I think, as understanding people shouldn't be working, you know, 12 hour days. Um, that managers shouldn't be emailing people at night and expecting a response, um, you know, assuming it's, it's a, a day job, um, encouraging people to take their vacation mm. and, you know, not to bother them while they're on their vacation, not to expect them to work double time before their vacation or after their vacation. There, you know, little things like this are, I think, more about management and leadership than they are about self-care. I mean, right. self-care, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, self-care is something I had to learn the hard way. Yes. But I think there's a huge responsibility on the leadership of an organization to have a role in not burning out their employees and on how to engage their employees so they don't leave. Right, right. So retention is yeah. crucial yeah. to, yes. to their success. I want to switch our conversation a little bit and I could talk about, you raised a lot of important points that we could spend hours talking about inclusion and sustainability are rich topics of discussion. 
But I really want to get to your book because I find your book and your daily posts to be a breath of fresh air in my personal life. Thank you. I primarily see your posts on LinkedIn. Again, Deborah Sabatini Henley. She posts these beautifully um, photographed scenes from a gorgeous place in which she lives uh, on the shore in New Jersey. And she has found a way to bring us presence in chaos. Can you tell us how did that book germinate in your mind and bloom, be birthed from a very busy uh, family life and work life that you are involved in every single day? How did you have the wherewithal and what sparked this seed that you should turn it into a book? Mm, Well, thank you. First, thank you for even mentioning the book because it was a a sort of a labor of love. Mm. Um, And it was, um, it was my way out of a really low point in my life. Um, I had gotten to, I guess I was about 56 or 57 and was just exhausted. I had been on a treadmill I couldn't get off of for, you know, 30 years since law school. And uh, some of that was uh, certainly self-imposed, you know, always pushing myself to do more, be more, next rung on the ladder, be a better mom, be a better wife, be a better daughter, sister, friend, whatever, and not focusing on taking care of myself, my physical and emotional and psychological and intellectual self. Mm. Um, and, you know, th- I think this is a, sort of a common theme among, you know, n- not just women, but I think men also, especially if they are parents and are involved parents. Um, I just, I got to the point after I, I had, um, I had been working sort of way too many hours and flying to different countries, doing projects here and there, and just couldn't get out of bed one day. Oh, geez. Just, just was so done. And, you know, when you have people depending on you for, you know, a roof over their head and keep the lights on and, you know, college costs and, and all of that, it, it's really, it's a, it's a lot of pressure on us and on um, kind of just pick yourself up and keep moving, right? You just get through today, get through tomorrow, get through this week. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And what I decided after, and I, I want to say it was, it was more than a few days of that kind of exhaustion was that I really needed to get serious about finding a way out of this burnout. I mean, I knew it was burnout. I, I've read enough to know that it was burnout. Um, I have a mother and sister who are psychologists oh. <laughs> and uh, lucky me. And, um, and so, you know, I definitely had them and some close friends and my husband to talk to about what I was feeling, but um, I'd read enough 
to know that I needed to start from inside me mm-hmm. and find my center again, because I had no idea where that was. I and had how no- long ago was that, that that happened? Um, it was probably four years ago, I guess. Wow. And yeah. how wonderful that you did the work to get yourself back on the beam. I mean, yeah. you uh, have always come across to me, at least, as a very centered and joyful person. Oh, well, and our conversation preceding the recording of this podcast was beautiful. I, I have so much respect for you and the way that you are filling your cup so that you too can fill the cup of others is oh, a beautiful thank you. thing. Thank you. Those things that you have done to crawl back out of a dark place in your life are things I'm sure we could talk about for at length, but would you be, (laughs) I like to ask all of my guests this question, what do you do to become your best version? Mm, What a great question. Well, I start every day with at least 10 minutes of quiet mindfulness meditation, if I can, but Mm -hmm. quiet time, just listening, just watching what's going on outside. I'm, I, I think a connection to nature, um, and, and lucky for us that we live by the ocean now, Mm -hmm. um, has been very helpful to me because to be my best self, I have to stop thinking I have to be what somebody else or lots of somebody else's want me to be. (laughs) And the best way to do that is for me is to just be quiet and focus back on what's important to me. And, um, and, and so that means starting every day new, you know, letting go, you know, okay. I didn't get everything done or I wasn't my best self yesterday. I'm going to start today new and, um, and starting each day like that, you know, the, the beginner's mindset, um, I think is, is what is what I would say is, is the way I find my best self. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners, food for thought, things we can use to make our lives better, to become our best versions. And you, again, can learn more about Debbie and her work at Resility, R-E-S-I-L-I-T-I dot com and presenceinchaos.com. Thank you so much, Debbie, for being here and sharing your considerable light with our listeners. Oh, Maria, thank you. I'm honored and delighted that you invited me. Thank you. Talk soon.